Oh, Father, where would we be? Were it not for what Jonathan just sang, were it not for your grace, forever running, but never winning the race, dear God, as we near the end of a journey, again, this subject, today's teaching will touch us where it hurts, where it really hurts. And so, Father, please, don't let the preacher get in the way of what you need to say. I've added in all of our minds, I and all of us will be listening for you. Speak, please. A strong word for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I can understand why the first mother would name her brand new baby boy Saul. I mean, please, after all, the name means asked of God. And when you've been asking God for a baby and that baby finally comes, what better name? What more appropriate? But for the life of me, I cannot understand why the second mother would have named her baby boy Saul as well. Not after that tragic meltdown that sacred history has so painstakingly preserved of the first Saul. A story so tragic that it ends up in suicide. I mean, what mother is going to name her baby after a good king turned bad and that bad to boot? In order to understand the tale of the second Saul, we need to know the story of the first Saul. And so we move close to a climax, not quite, don't you dare miss next week. No God humbler. That's the pinnacle next week. We move close to it. In our series, Not I But Christ, Tales of Humility, today's teaching entitled, A Tale of Two Sauls. Once upon a time, there was a God and a prophet who together were leading a nation. But wouldn't you know it, as it so often happens, the people they were leading looked at the nation, the world around them and said, we got to be just like they are. We got to have a king. The God and the prophet were deeply hurt. But the people are clamoring for a king. The God says, let's give him a king and let's give him a good one. And so that God scoured the land until he found the perfect king. Open your Bible with me, please, to the first book of Samuel. First book of Samuel there in the heart of the Old Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible right in front of you. It's page 193 in the Pew Bible. A tale of two Saul's. First Samuel. And when you find First Samuel, get over to chapter 9, please. I'm in the New King James Version. Those of you watching on television, listening on the Internet right now, grab a Bible. It doesn't matter the translation. 
the, the words on the screen will be out of the New King James. But that's okay. First Samuel chapter 9. Looking for a king. Look who he found. Watch this. First, first Samuel chapter 9 verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin. That would be the tribe of Benjamin. Whose name was Kish. He was the son of Abiel. He was the son of Zeror. He was the son of Bekorath. He was the son of Aphia. A Benjamite. A mighty man of power, Papa was. And he had, look at verse 2. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Asked of God. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Hey, how can you beat that, ladies and gentlemen? Tall, dark, and handsome. God is on a winning streak already. But he's not only tall, dark, and handsome. He is humble, as humble as they come. Drop down to uh, verse 17. So God informs his friend and prophet Samuel. Verse 17. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, that's my man. There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This is the one who shall reign over my people. Samuel responds, chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said to him, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? The king has been chosen. Nobody knows. And so God will go through an election. I got, a, I got a question for you. Wouldn't it be great if in the United States of America we would conduct an election just like this? You think of all the acrimony and money we would save. Here's how they did the elections back then. God says, bring all the children of Israel to Mizpah. So they all come. Samuel says, all right, give me a hat. So they give him a hat. I mean, it would be like today. Give me a hat. All right, let's put all 50 names of our states in the hat. Good. Drops. Alabama. Fine. Dump the rest out. Put all the cities and towns in Alabama in that hat. You fill the hat up with the cities and towns. Draw a name. Dothan. Good. Dump the rest out. Now put every family who lives in Dothan in that hat. Put all the names in. Draw. Smith. Good. Throw the rest out. Now put every Smith in this town in that hat. And when the finger... Fingers pull out the name, ladies and gentlemen, the new president of the United States. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? And we could do this thing just like that. And God would make the selection because that's exactly what happened. That's how God made the choice. And watch this. Drop a little farther down in uh, 1 Samuel 10. This is uh, verse... As soon as they announce the name, all right? Verse 22. So the people say, hey, watch this. Verse 22. They inquired of the Lord further. Has a man come here yet? Is he, is, he, is, he, is he here in this crowd? And God says, <clears throat> psst, psst. he's over there. Look, he's hiding in the luggage. Sure enough, that's exactly where, where it was. And the Lord answered, there he is hidden among the equipment. So, verse 23, they ran over to the suitcases. Saul was trying to hide behind the suitcases. And they brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, long live the king. Long live the king. They got their king at last. And a good one, by the way, a humble king. I went through this story, the first part of Saul's life. And I said, OK, I'm going to collect humility markers. I found five humility markers. 
Marker number one. When Samuel meets Saul for the first time, he says, man, you are the one we've been looking for. And Saul says, no way. I'm the least of the least of the least in the entire tribe. You're not looking for me. Humility marker number one. Humility marker number two. When Saul comes home from having that secret uh, visit with Samuel, his uncle says, hey, I heard you were with a prophet. What did he tell you? And, and Saul says, ah, oh, nothing. We were just looking for some donkeys. Humility marker number two. Humility marker number three. He's hiding. He's been anointed. He's still hiding. Can't be me. Humility marker number four. As soon as they announce his kingship, there's some, there's some hoods in the crowd who say, we'll not have this man reign over us. And the Bible says Saul just held his peace. Hey, make everybody happy. Humility marker number five. They go into battle. It's a signal victory for God. And now the people say, you want us to kill those guys, those, those rednecks? And the Bible says, Paul said, uh, Saul says, no way, no way, no way. Just let him go. Five humility markers. Would to God that the story of King Saul would end right there. He would, God, he would go down in history as the greatest, the first and greatest king of Israel. Because then we would know the truth that humble leaders are God's most successful leaders. Humble people. By the way, that truth has now been discovered empirically by research. came out in that classic book of Jim Collins, Good to Great, where they studied the top corporations in the United States to find out what makes what Jim Collins calls a level five leader. They're level three leaders, all kinds of level three leaders. There are some good level four leaders, but level five, you are, you are the creme de la creme. You are at the top. What are level five leaders like in politics? In business and in institutions? Let me read to you, Jim Collins. In fact, this is in your study guide. You'll need to fill it in. Here's a level five leader. Level five leaders are a study, get this, in duality. Modest. Write that in. Modest and willful. They're not namby-pambies. Humble and fearless. They're not cowards, but they're humble. To quickly grasp this concept, think of the United States President Abraham Lincoln, he writes, one of the few level five presidents in the United States history who never let his ego get in the way of his primary ambition for the larger cause of an enduring great nation. Isn't that something, guys, ladies and gentlemen, isn't that amazing? The number one leaders, the most successful leaders in America today are men and women who are humble. In fact, when the researchers were bringing back the results, Collins, I'll put this on the screen for you, those who worked with or wrote about the good to great leaders, these level five leaders, continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, understated, did not believe his own clippings, and so forth, end quote. You know what? You and I right now are thinking of leaders we know who fit the bill, level five leaders, who are humble leaders. Reminds me of these words written a century ago. They're there in your study guide. If men and women desire to be honored by God, let them be righted in. Let them be humble. Those who carry forward God's work should be distinguished from all others by their humility. Would to God that King Saul had, had held the road, that highway that he was on. Sadly, his tale begins to unravel with almost breathtaking speed. Symptomatic of his downward spiral. Chapter 14. Just turn a couple pages over. There are two verses by the historian intentionally juxtaposed. These two verses are placed side by side. Look at this. Downward spiral. Here's the evidence. This is chapter 14, verse 23. 
uh, Saul's boy Jonathan and his armor bearer have just taken down an entire Philistine garrison. It clearly is a divine victory. There's no way two boys could bring down an entire enemy fort. But they did. And so now the historian writes, verse 23, So the Lord, the Lord, please get that, the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth Avon. Now, he purposely puts right up beside it, verse 24, And the men of Israel were distressed that day. What's bugging you guys? Oh, here it is. They were distressed that day for Saul, the king, had placed the people under oath saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening. That was a stupid imperial command. I mean, you've got to eat to fight. Whose honor is Saul so eager to defend? Watch this. Cursed is anyone who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemy. Hey, hey, wait, time out. Time out, Saul. What do you mean, you? We just found out God is the one who has achieved this signal victory. This isn't about you. This isn't about your vengeance. The spiral has already begun. In fact, the Bible commentary... The author of the Bible commentary, whoever was uh, authoring this particular section, I'll put the words on the screen for you, and they're in your study guide as well, makes this, uh, this adroit observation. Saul's humility had forever taken flight, it seemed. And in its place, there appeared a false zeal, a secret pride, and an abuse of authority that was to mature through the years till he took his own life. This is, this is so sad. Like Judas, Saul ran well for a season. He started off strong. Had he died before calling Israel to Gilgal, he would have been regarded as worthy of the highest place in the kingly role of honor. Now he had betrayed his sacred trust, yet was permitted to live on that all might see the fruitage of selfishness and perversity. The moral spiral from humility to pride plunges downward. And we we use an expression, don't we? We talk about pride turning the head. Don't we use that phrase? Pride turns the head. Watch how the head gets turned. Chapter 15 now. How sad. Chapter 15, verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel. What do you have, what do you have to say to me, God? Oh, I got a word for you, Samuel. Verse 11. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me. His head was tur- has become turned. He has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. The next morning, Samuel finds Saul. Look at these words, verse 17. So Samuel said to Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, boy, do you remember when at one time you were little in your own eyes? Something has befallen you. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Last verse of that Tragic chapter, last verse, verse 35. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of Samuel's death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You have a heartbroken God. You have a heartbroken prophet because we just lost. He started with so much promise. He was chosen because he was little in his own eyes. But what happened? Soon he became all there was. In his own eyes, the tragic demise of humility, the crash and burn into destructive, self-destructive pride. So getting back to where we started, one would wonder, I mean, come on, mom, you got a whole 
dictionary, Bible dictionary full of names if you want to name that little boy something. But why would you pick the name Saul after a story like this? But that mother did. That Hebrew mother did. When that little baby boy was born, she and her husband from the tribe of Benjamin, they said, this boy is going to be named after the first king of Israel. They had ambitions. Nothing wrong, parents, with having ambitions for that child of yours. They had big ambitions. This boy is going to be like the first king of Israel. Obviously, they're thinking of the, they're thinking of the positive side. But wouldn't you know it, because the boy is born in Tarsus, which is a Roman colony in Asia Minor, like all the other boys in the, in the neighborhood, he had a Greco-Roman name as well. It, around the house in Hebrew, he's, he is Saul. But around the neighborhood, he's Paulos. He's in the Greek. He's Paulos. Little one. They called him little one. He might have been short his whole life for all we know. Shorty. That was his nickname. Stuck. Shorty grew up to, like a lot of boys do, wanted to be just like his dad. I want to be a Pharisee. When I grow up, his father was a Pharisee. Paul tells us that his father was a Pharisee. And so Shorty said, I'm going to be just like dad. And mom and dad saw the proclivity in that boy. And they said, you're going off to boarding school. We're going to send you to Jerusalem. And so he went to Jerusalem and he sat at the he sat at the knees of one of the brilliant sacred jurists and scholars of the day, a rabbi named Gamaliel. Oh, boy, Saul was a proud boy. Proud. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Proud that that was the tribe that offered the first king. Proud that he was going to be a Pharisee just like his dad. Proud that he kept the law of God with punctilious accuracy. Proud that he would live the life of moral flawlessness. Proud. So you can understand, he hated to lose. When you're proud, you hate losing. But one day he went to church, and it looks like he lost big time. I'm going to show you this. Go to the book of Acts. Surprising encounter one day in church. And I tell you what, we're set up for Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story with this line that a lot of people just race over. They don't, they don't get what's happening here. I want you to slow down a bit and look at Acts chapter 6. Watch this. This is fascinating. Acts chapter 6. You know, your pew Bible, that would be page... Uh, 737. Because Saul shows up in church one day, the synagogue. Watch this. He shows up in the synagogue and there is another young man in church that day. He's also he's also a Jew, but he's a proselytite. He, 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 he's a Greek who's been won to Judaism. And get this. He's not only a Jew, but he is now a disciple of this dead Jesus of Nazareth. And he gets up in the synagogue Maybe he was set up, we don't know, but they fall into a ferocious debate. And the young rabbi, scholar from Tarsus, takes him on. You say, Dwight, are you reading this into the story? Look at this, verse 8, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, hold on, verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. People. Who are Cyrenians, they are Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia. Cilicia is the Asian province that has Tarsus. So there's some people from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to dispute with Stephen. They're having a public debate, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. He outwitted them, he outscriptured them, he outmaneuvered them every single time. This young follower of this Jesus called the Christ wins the debate. 
to perhaps the titter of the synagogue audience. And when you're proud and you love to win and you fail in public, you'll have the last say. And notice what happens after Stephen wins the debate. They were not able to resist in verse 10. And then they secretly, after the debate, induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Setting up the first martyr of the Christian faith. Because the ecclesiastical trial is convened in chapter 7. It's over. It's over before it even started. Stephen gives an eloquent defense, but he sees at the end it's over. Now watch this. They drag him out of the trial, outside the walls. They summarily stone him. But notice this, young, this other young adult's posture. Chapter 7, near the end, verse 58. And they cast Stephen out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He never picked up a stone. But his heart was saying, it's what you get. He stood there and watched the death of another young scholar. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 3. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. He entered every house, dragged off the men and women, committed them to prison. Kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. Kill him. Man, I hate to lose when I'm proud. I win. He thinks. He's so passionate to rid this hated sect from the face of the earth that when he finds out that some have fled northward to the ancient city of Damascus, the young rabbi and scholar assembles his own posse and leads them to Damascus and just outside the city gates. On his way, the Messiah of Israel personally meets the young man. Well, you know the story. I love reading it every time. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. And as Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly, there's this light shining all around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, You get up off of those feet, you arise and go into that city, and you will be told what you're to do next. Goodbye. Gone. For three days... In a home inside the walls of Damascus, three days and nights, without water or food, the young scholar and rabbi brooded over the meaning of what happened on that Damascus road. Three days later, there's a knock at the door. I love this part, too, because it was a tough visit for that young pastor to make. But he made it. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way after God had told him, you get, your, you get the man who's coming to kill you. Ananias went his way and he entered the house and he laid his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes, Saul's eyes, something like scales just running down his cheeks. And he received his sight 
at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And I love verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ, the Messiah in the synagogues, that he is the son of God. For three long days and nights, the proud Pharisee is being disassembled layer by layer until he is nothing at the end but a humble follower of this Jesus of Nazareth. Those of you that struggle with the same sin, those of us that struggle with the same sin, isn't it good to know God can work quickly if we're willing And so it was that this man becomes the most intrepid missionary in the history of Christianity. He finally becomes, can you believe this, the greatest follower of Jesus Christ ever to have lived on this planet, bar none, the end. The story's over. Except for one obscure piece of the biography that we must share together. This little piece holds perhaps the greatest secret of all to humility, which is why we've saved it until today. The newly converted Paul eventually disappears for several years. We don't know for sure, but when we take the scraps of the New Testament, little bits and pieces from the record, it becomes clear that eventually he heads back to Cilicia and he's in his hometown of Tarsus. While in Tarsus, the God who has called him on the Damascus Road comes to him and personally ushers him into supernatural visions and revelations. And then suddenly, a few years later, he reappears, and we can track him till his beheading. That divine entrustment, while he was obscurely hidden from human view, as it were, precipitated what turns out to be the great principle of humility. And I want to end in this passage. Find 2 Corinthians chapter 12, please. We will end here. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, I need to set you up for 2 Corinthians 12. What's happening here is that Paul has become accused by some people in Corinth, or he's writing this letter. It's the second letter to Corinth. He's being accused of really not being a real deal apostle. You're not a real deal. You're not the, the real McCoy. There's something, there's something wrong about you. Your background's something. I don't know. But beginning in chapter 10, he sets out to, to reestablish for the church in Corinth his credentials as a genuine apostle. If he had simply kept silent, he would have played into that lie and he would have done disservice to his master. He has to speak up now. And so through chapter 11, he is establishing his credentials. And then he says, I got one more piece, one more piece to tell you about chapter 12. Here we go. Chapter 12, verse one. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I'm not here bragging, guys, but I need to tell you this. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, I know such a one who was caught up to the third heaven. Hold it right there. You know where the third heaven is? First heaven is atmosphere. Second heaven, the stars. Third heaven is where God lives. Paul says, I knew a man once. You know what he's doing? You know what he's doing, don't you? It's a literary device. It's the very same device humble John seizes when he writes the life story of Jesus in the Gospel of John, inserts himself five times into that story, but never, ever utters his name. You remember that? The first part in this series, the, the disciple that Jesus kept on loving. You remember that? That's a device. It's me, but I'm not going to ever use my name in this story. I'm not worthy. Paul does the same thing. He said, I knew a man once. 
He's talking about himself. I knew a man once 14 years ago. He could have just said, hey, listen, let me tell you about the visions I've had. No, 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 no. We're dealing with a very humbled and humble man. I knew a man who went up to the third heaven. Now, verse 3 says, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He repeats himself. Verse 4, how he was caught up into paradise. He got into heaven somehow, and he heard while up there inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. I cannot even tell you what this man heard. Someday we'll find out. We'll find out. Verse 5. Of such a one I will boast. I'm going to boast about this guy. I'm not going to boast about me, you understand. I'm going to boast about this guy. Isn't that something? Of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself I will not boast except for my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I'll not be a fool. Let me tell you something. Some of you perhaps will find this verse handy. Proverbs 27, verse 2. Listen to this. Let another man praise you and not your own lips. Let a stranger and not your own lips. I tell you, once in a while I bump into a person who's just praising himself or herself, and I'm thinking to myself, what is the problem here? What are you, so insecure that you have to praise yourself? And if you did something great, the word will be out. If it wasn't that great, that's why you're telling me. <laughs> Don't ever praise yourself. Let me just give you that little bit of advice from the Apostle Paul. I knew a man once. I just knew a man once. Oh, oh by the way, that's the disciple that Jesus kept on loving. I don't know what the guy's name is, but he's a disciple Jesus just kept on loving. Never praise yourself. If it's worth praising, somebody else will step up for you. Trust me. Otherwise, just leave it alone. God knows. And that's all that counts anyway. For though I might desire to boast, I'll not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. I'm not going to elevate myself. Now, here it comes. Hold on to your pew right now. Here we go. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of these visions, these revelations, a thorn of the flesh was given to me. Now, let me tell you about that word, the Greek word for thorn. It's not the crown of thorns thorn that Jesus had on his head. It's another word that means a, a, a wedge of wood that is jammed into human flesh. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten a splinter underneath your nail? Have you? Isn't that about the worst of the worst? I mean, it starts to bleed and you finally get the bleeding stop and you can see that dark line. There's something in there, but I can't get in to get it out. Paul says, I was given a splinter that went straight into my flesh. Not into my heart. Not into my mind. It's in my flesh. Scholars and students of the Bible say, well, I wonder what this is, this, this thorn in the flesh. And they begin to pull pieces together. And they remember that Paul, when he was writing to the Galatians, said, oh, I'm so grateful for you people. You were willing to tear your eyes out and give your eyes to me. And then, in, an, and then in fact, all the way through uh, Paul's epistles, he keeps, using, he keeps using what they call an amanuensis, which is a scribe. He keeps having other people write for him. And then there's that letter where he says, I, I, I just took the pen myself, and in real big letters, you have me. And students of the Bible say, it must be his eyes. It must be something in the eyes that publicly embarrass him. Something that is an, an, an awful inconvenience. Something that humbles him wherever he goes. He's always having to be dependent on other people. He it must be something here. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. And notice what he calls it, a messenger, a messenger of Satan. The Greek word for messenger is angelos, it means angel. A demon was sent to me. A demon. And by the way, it's a demon of Satan. It's not from God. 
This isn't an angel from God poking and poking him. No, this is a demon straight out of, out of the kingdom of darkness as it were. God never causes evil. God never is the author of what is evil. A demon of Satan has been tracking me in this thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. The very word used in Jesus' arrest there in that mock trial late early Friday morning when they struck him, struck him with their fists. Same Greek word. This demon has been beating me to a pulp. Why? Uh, Lest I be exalted above measure. Would you write it down in your study guide, please? I.E. I.E. So that I might be kept humble. To keep me humble. This thorn in the flesh. Verse A, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times. Just like Jesus in Gethsemane, begging, begging God to take it away. That it might depart from me. I begged. Verse 9, and you know what he said to me? Here we go. This is that classic line, that the beloved line remembered throughout history. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul exclaims most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you get that? When I am weak, then I'm strong. Regarding the Apostle Paul, I found great comfort in comparing my puny, little, puny, little life up against the grand devotion of this noble servant of the Most High God. I find comfort in discovering that what I struggle with night and day, he struggled with too. This is from that little classic ministry of healing. Fill it in in your study guide. The life of the Apostle Paul was a constant, constant conflict with self. Isn't that amazing? Constant conflict with self. His will and his desires every day conflicted with duty and the will of God. Instead of following inclination, he did God's will, however crucifying to his nature. End quote. Hey, you know that hymn that became kind of the part of the title of this miniseries, Not I But Christ? That, those words are direct, directly out of the King James Version. The great confession of Paul's humility. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I but Christ. Liveth in me in the life which I live. I now live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Not I, but Christ. We sing the words. They're straight out of the confession of this man who has been buffeted by a demon of hell and held, pinned down, his entire ministry, pinned down by that thorn in the flesh. And because this greatest of Christians battled self like you and I do, God allowed, now listen, God allowed into Paul's life, even as he does with us, he allowed that which Paul very much wished were not in his life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the hard path of humility. It's suffering. Suffering. 
You know, we, we, we talked with the life of Moses in this little mini-series about how important it is for humility, humility to embrace our failures. But, you know, the thing about failure is if I did the failure, I know who to blame. I'll embrace it. I'll admit I really screwed up. I deserve to be humiliated in front of everybody. That's my fault. But when something comes to me from outside of me over which I have zero control and it pummels me and it pins me and it thrusts itself into me, I'm telling you guys, where, where, where do I turn? I have no relief. I can't, I can't embrace that. The shining principle that the hard pathway of humility is through suffering. But I, I need to insert this caveat very quickly. I cannot walk into your hospital room, and there's some of you watching right now or listening in a hospital room. I cannot walk into your hospital room and declare to you that you are suffering from the, by the hand of God because you have a problem with pride and this is God's way of getting it out of your life. Number one, that would be ludicrous. How do I know what you're going through and why you're going through it? Number two, it's not from God. It's always from Satan. Evil always is from Satan. Jesus said, an enemy has done this. I cannot walk into your hospital room and say, oh, it looks like every sick person I know is struggling with pride. That would be so bad. But you know what? In the same breath, I need to tell you, I can walk into my own sick room and declare just as Paul did. I am going through this because God, in his love for me, is drawing me closer to his love and humility. I must be going through this for a reason right now. I can do that to me. Nowhere in Paul's epistles does he ever say, ah, you know the reason why you're suffering, madam? The reason you're suffering is because you've got a problem with pride. God will humble you. Just endure it. Never. But he says, so utterly clearly, I have this thorn in my flesh and I am suffering because I have a problem with pride and God is keeping me humble. Therefore, I will embrace what humbles me. That's what's happening here. Suffering is the hard pathway to humility. I want to close with three quotations that make the case and I'll sit down. Three quotations. Watch this. And by the way, I need to ask you this just before I share these last three. Are you following this? Are you understanding what we're, what we're talking about here? This, this, is, this is crucial. Does it make sense to you? Because right now the bolt is going to tighten. It's going to screw down even harder. But you need to understand what's going on. I want to share with you a quotation from, from a writer named Derek Kidner. A friend of mine gave me a, a two-volume set of uh, commentaries for the book of, the book of Psalms. Read them both through. Just a marvelous uh, commentary. Derek Kidner, in commenting on David's illness in Psalm 38, makes a point that, boy, it jumped off the page to me, and I'm passing it on to you. It's there in your study guide. David groaning before God because of his illness. Now, read it there. The wording in Psalm 38 leaves no doubt that this sickness was a punishment. Now, here comes a, a key line. Hang on to this. It would be as wrong to think that this is never so as that it is always so. We can't make the conclusion nobody ever suffers as a consequence of God doing something in his life. We can't make that, nor can we make the, the conclusion everybody who's suffering, God is dealing something really big. We can't make either, either extreme. And in fact, then he, then he lists two verses. John 5, 14. 
You remember Jesus raising a paralytic by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day once? And when he bumps into the man again in the synagogue, he says, hey, listen, you better stop sinning or something worse is going to come upon you. What's he saying? You got what you got because of your sin. Very clear. But in John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus says, did the blind man sin that he's born blind? Did his parents sin? No, nobody sinned. Sin's not an issue. So Jesus very carefully steps between those, those extremes. And that's what Kidner is noticing here. Now read on. Whether David's suffering was the natural outcome of his own sin, as are the diseases of lust and excess, there is no sure way of telling. What is clear is that the illness opened David's eyes to a spiritual plight by humbling him. God used that illness to humble David. Kidner is joining with the Apostle Paul in declaring that physical afflictions can indeed humble us. I want to share a quotation number two. Gregory Boyd, the most brilliant theodicy I have ever read, has written the theodicy. The, the, the title is, Is God to Blame? Gregory Boyd makes a very similar conclusion, and I want you to read this. This, this is something. It was Satan, quoting Boyd now, it was Satan, not God, who originally gave Paul his thorn in the flesh, but even though Jesus uniformly expressed God's will as being against sickness and disease, in this case, those are Boyd's italics, in this case, Jesus saw that with Paul, it was more beneficial to leave the infirmity in place. Now, hold on. Indeed, Paul suggests that in this case, Satan was specifically allowed to torment him, Paul, for this very reason. Now, notice, it wasn't God's ideal to have Paul afflicted, but given Paul's struggle with pride, allowing him to be afflicted was closer to God's ideal than removing it. Isn't that something? You have to take that home and brood on that one. Isn't that something? Brood on that one. Of course I could take this away from you. My ideal is that you be in health. But actually letting you go through this gets you closer to my ideal spiritually for you. So I'm not taking it away. You'll suffer. Isn't that amazing? And just like Derek Kidner and Gregory Boyd, along comes a writer preceding both of them named Ellen White. And she makes the identical point those brilliant theologians have made to us. She describes an intense period of suffering. And I want to end with this quotation. It's there in your study guide. Through all my sickness the last eight months, some of you know what it's like to endure prolonged pain and suffering. I know. We have talked. Through all my sickness the last eight months, I have had during my sleepless hours the most precious contemplations of the love of God to man and woman, expressed in the wonderful sacrifice made to save us from ruin. Now notice this. Looking upon the cross. I love this. Looking upon the cross at the humiliations and sufferings endured in bearing our sins that His righteousness might be imputed to us. Looking upon the cross softens the heart. Do you know why? Because suddenly I am reminded somebody else has been through this insanity ahead of me and has been humiliated, stripped naked on that center cross. Humiliated. Begging God, take it away. Take it away. And God says, nope. Your pathway is going straight the cross. Looking upon the cross softens the heart. Man, I'm not alone. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody has gone ahead of me. Softens the heart and fills the soul with His love. Now the, the, the clincher here comes. 
When pain has seemed to be almost unbearable, and some of you listening right now, some of you watching on television, some of you who are in this sanctuary know exactly what that means when pain has almost become unbearable. I have looked to Jesus and I have prayed most earnestly and He has been beside me and the darkness has passed away and all has seemed light and here it is. I believe now that my sickness in this strange country is a part of God's plan. After eight months of suffering, I've come to the conclusion God wants me here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the hard truth about humility and its pathway. It goes straight through suffering. I told you when we were talking to God at the beginning of this, this is going to touch us all where it hurts the most. I cannot say to you that what you are enduring right now is sent of God. I would be a fool too. But I can say of me, every cross of suffering has been allowed into my life to deal with my pride and to lead me up the high pathway to humility. For when I am weak, only then, when I am weak, then I am strong. I believe now that my sickness is part of God's plan. The hard pathway, because there's nothing worse than appearing before others as weak. There's nothing harder than that. And high, highway. It's the highway, because it's the way of Christ and the cross. It's the only high way to heaven. The only one. I want to read you some words. I want you to close your eyes right now, please. Contemplate these words written by Katrina von Schlegel. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change He faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. 